Good morning, Evergreen Church family. Um, this is Advent season. This is a time where we do anticipate uh, Christ coming, and he did come 2,000 years ago in the flesh, and he is coming back again. We're also looking forward to the second coming of our Lord and Savior. And the sermon, uh, this, uh, the title of this sermon is called The Good, Shep- the Good Shepherd is God. And so we, we are concluding our four-part series on the Good Shepherd, John chapter 10 today. And it's been the most satisfying uh, study as we look into the Good Shepherd, Jesus. And today we're seeing how Jesus is God himself. So let's pray as we get ready to hear the sermon preached. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you make it clear who you are. You say, I and the Father are one. You make it clear that you are God. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are following you. You are the right one to follow. So Father, I pray, Lord, that we will know your Son more through the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, allow our hearts to hear from you through the preaching of your word. God, I pray that we will know you more and trust you more, love you more. So Father, I pray you will form your Son more completely in all of our hearts. We will become more like your son, Jesus. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a quick review as we we, uh, ascend down to our fourth and final message. The first message in this series was called Jesus the Good Shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd as he feeds the sheep and takes care of his sheep. He contrasted the good shepherd with the bad shepherd by calling the Pharisees, in essence, the bad shepherds. The Pharisees would feed on the sheep and take advantage of the sheep for their own gain. The next sermon was called, The Good Shepherd Knows His Sheep, as we discovered that Jesus calls his sheep by name, and that our names, those of us who are in Christ, are written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. Jesus calls us despite knowing the good, the bad, and the ugly in all of us. Okay, he knows us. The third message last week was called the Good Shepherd Holds His Sheep. This is preaching on the eternal security of his sheep. How it is by God's power and God's holding that we are part of his family. God is the one that takes care of us. And we also touched upon how the, 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 the sheep, the church, is really a love gift to the Son from the Father. And the Father will get everything He paid for. He will get what He paid for, and He paid dearly with, by uh, sending His Son to the cross. Today, the, con- uh, the message is, a, is that the Good Shepherd is God. We're going to be out of John chapter 10, so please rise, and I hope you have your Bibles. We'll be out of John chapter 10. Uh, verse 30 to 42. And a little bit of a context. Last week, the Pharisees asked them as they mobbed them, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Okay, this is Hanukkah season in, in the Bible. It's Hanukkah season right now, perhaps. And he said, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Are you the Savior? And this is one of the clearest parts of Scripture where Jesus claims to be God himself. Verse 30, God's word says out of John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, 
and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming me because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do then, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. Verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptized and John the Baptist. And he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Verse 42. Many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. Thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. May it be infused by the power of your Holy Spirit so we love your son more. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. As I got to do uh, some seminary studies and learning about church history, it's, it's become clear how Satan has attacked Christ and attacked his church by attacking who Jesus is. Early on from church history, this has happened. Sat satanic assaults on our Lord and Savior's identity has been attacked. For example, there's a, there's a heresy called Arianism, which basically claims that Jesus is not God. Okay, he's a created being, created son of God, but not God himself, not the creator of all things. Another heresy called Gnosticism basically claims that Jesus is not human. He was there in spirit and kind of floating around like as if, as if a ghost or a spirit, but not in the flesh. These are two clear ways how Satan has attacked the identity of our Lord and Savior. And right here, John Chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus makes it very clear, crystal clear, that he is God. Verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, what does this mean? Okay, in the original language, this is not talking about I and the Father are one person. This is talking about in substance, in nature, same essence. Okay, Jesus is basically claiming to be equal with the Father. Therefore, since we're equal and we're of the same substance, we have the same mind, we have the same purpose, Jesus is telling the Pharisees. And another heresy that arose was, is a heresy called modalism. Modalism is, in essence, denying the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there's one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct people, but one God. Okay, the, the modalists believed in just one God, and in essence, uh, he, God will manifest himself at times as, as the Father, but just one God. Okay, and then at, the, at other times, manifest himself as the Son or the Holy Spirit. It just depends on what mode, which, hence the word modalism, which mode God wants to show himself. Okay, but we know that God exists permanently from eternity in three distinct persons. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, Father's in heaven. Father's everywhere. But Jesus is distinctly there as well. Hebrews 1.3 says this. He is the radiance of his glory. Radiance, the brightness, not a reflection of the God's glory. Jesus has his own glory associated with him. Same glory as the Father. 
In essence, we're able to see the glory of, the, of God in the face of Christ. You know Christ, you know the Father. And as, as Hebrews 1.3 goes on, he is, Jesus, is the exact representation of his nature. Same exact nature. And just like only God can, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He keeps the entire universe, every molecule, every atom in place, just by speaking it, by commanding. Only the creator God has this type of authority. That's Jesus. This is Jesus who we're talking about. Simply by speaking, universe, the universe stays intact. Jesus is God. The Bible says right here in Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact representation of his nature. Okay, exact. Like think of a minted coin. Perfect representation of God. Perfect imprint. Same essence. Same nature. Same glory. Same sinless nature. Same character. Same holiness. Same power, unlimited power, unlimited knowledge. This is our Lord. This is Jesus who we're talking about. Remember in John 14, Jesus says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you have known me, if you know me, you know the Father. This is why we preach Christ. This is why we study the Bible, so we get to know Jesus more. If we, the more we know Jesus, the more we know the Father. That's how this works. So Jesus is clearly claiming to be God here. And what was the Jews' response? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones to stone him again. They would say, no, what? We're going to murder you right now. He's absolutely surrounded. They're armed with stones to kill Jesus. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to be. Verse 32, Jesus kind of responds and says, okay, well, why are you about to kill me for it? Which miracle? This, what, what's, which work? What good work did I do? Which miracle that I did are you going to kill me for? Is it the, when I turn water into wine? Is it feeding the 5,000? Is it casting out demons from countless people? Is it raising the dead out of the grave? Is it healing the man who was crippled for 38 years? Or perhaps is it the most recent miracle that the, uh, John talks about giving sight to the blind man since he was born. Is it any of these? Which one of these are you going to kill me for? Well, verse 33, here's a clear testimony of God's humanity, Jesus' humanity. The Jews answered him, for a good work like, or miracle, we do not stone you. Remember, miracles did not offend people. Miracles, and miracles was not, were not offensive to the Pharisees. This does not offend them. But for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. The Pharisees are indicting him for blasphemy. This isn't the first time they wanted to kill him. In John chapter 5, he claims equality with the Father. They try to kill him then. John chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. They try to kill him then. They try, they've been trying to murder Jesus for quite some time now. And so this is coming in line. But what the thing that I see, this is not new in John, but what we see clearly is that the Jews are testifying to the humanity of Christ. When Christ is saying, I and the Father are one, this is not some ghost or some spirit that's talking to them. They see him as a man. They see the flesh, they see his hair, they see his eyes. They could touch him. They feel like stones will actually have some kind of effect on his head. 
All right? They know this is a direct testimony of how the Jews are even, the religious rulers are testifying that Jesus is God. John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. Okay, this is what Christmas is about. This is what Advent is about, how God took on human form and dwelt amongst his creation. So this is clearly attacking the, this heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism that just said Jesus came in spirit, but he really wasn't there in bodily form. And this is what happens when you mix uh, human philosophy. This is Greek philosophy that got mixed in with some Bible. You added Greek philosophy and basically that, that belief from Plato that said that spirit is good, but anything of physical, anything, this pulpit, our physical flesh, is of evil in nature. So there's no way they could be combined. That's why Jesus came from a virgin, Mary. So this is absolutely crushing this whole idea. Now, what, what's the big deal? He said, Pastor Rocky, why do I even need to know this? Why, what's the big deal? What is the big deal? Why do you got to bring up these things? Why is it so important that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Well, this has direct gospel implications. In order for Christ our Lord to be nailed on, a, on the cross to pay for the sins of humanity, blood was absolutely necessary. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus didn't have a human body bleeding for us, that sacrifice would not have been counted towards us, credited towards us. He was a sinless sacrifice. He needed to be human to pay for the sins of humanity. And he did purchase us, the Bible says, with his own blood. Blood is a key ingredient for bringing about atonement in the biblical system. In the Old Testament, remember? These are slaughter lambs and goats and oxen, animals, as a prefiguring, as emblematically of the ultimate sacrifice that will come on the cross someday, Jesus. And this is why Jesus commands the church to practice holy communion, observe communion, to remember the death and sacrifice of Christ, the broken body represented in the bread. The shed blood, the spilled blood represented in the juice or the wine. This is why we take communion every month. This is why we obey our Lord, to remember the cost, the cost that Jesus paid <coughs> for us. In a few months, we'll celebrate Easter. And Easter is about the bodily resurrection of Christ, not the spirit that came back to life. Jesus was murdered and killed and died for three days. He was buried in a tomb, in a cave. Three days later, his body resurrected from the dead. Three days later, his disciples were able to see him. Three days later, Thomas was able to feel the scars in, the, in his hands and his side. Three days later, he was able to eat fish and eat food with the, his disciples. Physical body. This is why we celebrate Easter. More than a spirit that just came back to life. And I just, just as a sidebar, I, I, you know, I don't know how many of us have thought about this, but have you guys ever thought about what is our Lord going to be like when we see him someday in heaven? I mean, have you thought about that? Did he go back to a, the spirit form? Jesus is going to be there, fully God, fully human, in the deluxe glorified edition of his body. 
perfectly glorified. And we're going to be able to hug him. We're going to be able to touch him. We're going to be able to just talk to him and feel him. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we follow. And I, I believe the more we understand these things, the more we'll fall in love, the more we'll love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now to the second point, he is fully human, but was he fully God? Arianism says no, he was a created being. He's, not, he's a son of God, a, a created son of God. Not God himself, not the creator of all things, not the one who holds the universe by the command of his word. Modern-day Arianism is known as Jehovah's Witness. They believe in a created uh, uh, Son of God. Jesus is fully God, is fully man, truly God and truly man. Bible talks about it. Okay, He took on human flesh. He did not lose any of his uh, divine nature. Incarnation, we talk about this word during Christmas time, during the Advent season. Incarnation means to take on human form. He added humanity to himself. He did not lose any of his uh, uh, godly nature or his divinity. He wasn't a ghost just floating around. He was God in the human flesh. And why is this necessary on the cross? Well, God, the Father, has eternal wrath towards sinners. What does that mean? If you or I die apart from Christ, we will experience the Father's wrath for eternity. And the sacrifice required an eternal being, God himself, to pay for this eternal wrath. That's why this, this doctrines of he is fully God, fully human, is abs of, the, of paramount issue, absolutely critical. So as we think about this now, Jesus kind of goes into this mode. He, you know, they, they're loaded, they're ready to fire on him, and Jesus kind of tempers them for a little bit. Verse 34, he talks about, I know you believe the writings of the prophets. I know you believe in the scriptures. I know you believe in the authority of the Bible, the Old Testament, the Jews had. I know you believe none of these things can be broken. So Jesus takes them to Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is basically an indictment of the judges of Israel who weren't judging righteously. And in essence, the judges were performing a divine task of judging, all right? And, and the Bible, and he's make, he makes an argument basically from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if the Bible calls these judges gods, lowercase g, G-O-D-S, lowercase g, how do you get mad at me when I call myself the son of God when I am God? He's making this huge uh, lesser to greater argument. How could you do that? Like, how are you even being considered? You can't pick and choose what, to, what parts of the Bible that you believe. Just like for us, we cannot pick and choose. The Bible is God's word. Either we submit to Christ as Lord or we don't. These aren't suggestions. Look here, verse 37 of John chapter 10. If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. Jesus is saying, okay, just don't go off of my words. Look at the life I've led. Look at the miracles that you've seen with your own eyes. Look at the miracles that you heard testify to that I've done. That's proof. And, and, and uh, it just takes me back a little bit to my coaching days. Any player who's confident, okay, thinks they should be playing more. All right, 
Whether it's true or not, sometimes we have an overinflated view of our abilities and say, hey, how come I'm not starting? Why, why is that guy starting? So I said, okay, sometimes the players and coaches wouldn't agree. That's, that's cool. That's, that's okay. So we said, all right, come on in. And we'd come into the office and talk about it. But we had this saying in, in football that says, the eye in the sky never lies. What's the eye in the sky? Well, football is notorious for taking advantage of film. We film everything. We film practices, games, even drills. We even film ourselves uh, presenting in our meetings sometimes, you know. And um, because sometimes we could have this, infl- this view of ourselves, sometimes a lower view, sometimes an inflated, overly inflated view. So we watch the film. You say you play hard every play, do you? Okay, let's, watch, let's just turn on the game tape. All right, play one, that's pretty good. Play two, uh, is that 100%? That looked kind of like three-quarter speed. Uh, I was tired, coach. Okay, the eye in the sky never lies. Or you say that you understand the scheme and you understand that, how to play fast. Well, I hear you look like you're kind of hesitating. Look, you look kind of confused. Well, I, had, I got some dirt in my eyes. Well, the eye in the sky never lies, right? I thought you said you're going to out-hit these guys and be physical. You turned it down right there. You made a business decision. Well, well, uh, the eye in the sky never lies. So don't just tell me, show me who you are, right? So Jesus is basically saying, look at my life. Haven't I proven without a shadow of doubt that I am God? Well, obviously, these guys were blinded. These men, they're incapable. As we learned before, God has to do the miracle of allowing people to see who he is. They wanted to arrest him, and they they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. They want to kill him again. Verse 38, I just want to just read this for us here. But if I do them, talking about the miracles, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The Father and I are one. Believe the works will testify of that fact. And what was their response? Therefore they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. This was another miracle that took place. Remember, Jesus is a man. I don't care how strong, how athletic you are. You're a man surrounded by 20 people. You're going to die. Okay? How did Jesus just say, all right, it's not time. I'm just going to take off. That's not just going to happen. That was another testifying miracle that Jesus is God and Jesus is in control. Jesus is basically saying, hey, my time hasn't come yet. My time's going to come to die, but it isn't right now. It isn't on your accord or your timing that I'm going to die. Not on your timetable. It's on my timetable. So Jesus, right here is another miracle that just kind of just is mentioned here real briefly. And then he, what happens here, there's a kind of an interesting uh, transition. So all this stuff that we've been talking about is happening in the temple of Jerusalem. The Mecca, the center of, of Jewish Judaism, right there. Verse 40, the scene completely shifts. At the end of chapter 10, it goes from Jerusalem into the countryside, into the wilderness. Verse 40, let me read this for us. And I, I thought this was very interesting. This hit me between the eyes as I kept reading this and studying this, 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 these verses. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John, John the Baptist, was first baptizing. And he was staying there. He leaves Jerusalem. Miraculously, he gets out of that mob and just leaves. And leaves the city, leaves the place of his future death, leaves all that uh, the hype and the hoopla of Judaism in Jerusalem, and he goes to the countryside. He goes to the wilderness, where he was baptized, perhaps, where John the Baptist might have baptized, where his public ministry might have begun. And so he goes back 
Uh, and then next time he ever steps foot in Jerusalem will be four months later. Remember, John 10, ha- at the end of John 10 happens in the wintertime. This is during Hanukkah. So ha- four months later, Easter happens. Next time Jesus comes, he comes riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. And, and, and Passion Week happens, and he'll be crucified on that Friday, be buried and risen on that following Sunday. So the next time Jesus steps into Jerusalem, he will be killed. That's when the time will be. But why does the Bible in John, why did the disciple John who penned the gospel, John, write verse 40, 41, and 42? Maybe it could have just ended like he just left. All right. Why does it? I, I, I found so much encouragement in these next three verses. It's such a treasure for all of us. Let's read verse 41. Many came to him. Nobody came to Jesus in Jerusalem other than a blind man to faith, as far as I know. Many came to him, the Bible says, and were saying, while John, talk about John the Baptist, performed no sign, no miracle. Nothing miraculous. What did John the Baptist do? Yet everything John said about this man was true. Verse 42, many believed in him there. Jesus leaves Jerusalem, heads north. And then now the scene sets into the countryside. And now we're focusing on John the Baptist now. Just a review about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is called by Jesus the greatest born of a woman in Matthew 11. The greatest born of a woman. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, blood cousin. But John the Baptist gives us the perfect picture of executing the roles that we've been given. The perfect picture. You want to know what it looks like to live out the Christ-dominated life? This is John the Baptist. We're always looking for role models, Right? We're always looking for people to kind of emulate. We don't worship John the Baptist, but this is an image like, man, if if it's possible for him, perhaps it's possible for me. This is what we're looking for. I always looked for these type of men and women growing up. I always looked for this type of role model to inspire me, to give me more fuel, give me more clarity on what I'm supposed to be like. John 3.30, trademark statement of John the Baptist. He says, he must increase. Jesus, Christ Jesus must increase. I must decrease. It's not about me. John the Baptist saying, I must make little of myself, make much of Christ, Jesus. This is the heart of John the Baptist. He did no signs, no miracles, no hoopla, nothing. Nothing. What did he do? And many believed. And it's interesting, John the Baptist, he he was a planter. He's the one that scattered these seeds in this setting here in in John 10, 40, 41, and 42. Jesus is the actual one who reaped uh, the harvest. Remember this now. John the Baptist at this point has been beheaded. He's killed now. He's dead. He didn't get to see this side of the fruits on, on this side of eternity. Jesus reaped what John the Baptist sowed. So some of us, many of us, we may be sowing seeds. We may not even see the fruit of that in our lifetime or even to our knowing. Somebody else may do the reaping. Jesus did the reaping. Now, I want to focus in on this. This is something that all of us can handle. He, while John performed no sign, no miracle, all right? Yet everything John said about this man was absolutely true, true. 
Everything John B. said about him was true. John B. preached Christ. This is what he did. This is what John the Baptist was about. And what was John the Baptist's message? He said, we must proclaim the true Christ. During Christmas time, you can say Merry Christmas, and you will come across different people who will say Merry Christmas who have different belief systems. Just let's make very clear here. The Christ that everyone proclaims may not be the same Christ that we proclaim. Jehovah Witness, the Mormons, they preach a fake Jesus, a false Jesus. A false Jesus is a false gospel. A false gospel is no gospel. There is no hope in that. The one true Jesus is the one that provides the one and only gospel, which provides certain hope in Christ Jesus. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Fully God and fully man. God is the one that saves. Remember that. We learned that a few lessons ago here, how God knows his sheep. But just like John the Baptist, we preach Christ. This is what we do. We could handle this. But we got to be clear. We must be clear on who Christ is. If we're not clear, we're not going to be preaching the real Christ, perhaps. We may stumble upon wrong things. We do not preach human wisdom. We do not preach and emphasize civil rights or politics. We preach Christ. The reason why I am not in pro football is to preach Christ. Study the Bible, preach Christ. This is the message of our lives. What was John the Baptist's message? All right, what did he preach? He preached a completed Christ. He preached Christ is the Lamb of God. He preached Christ is the one who forgives sin. He preached Christ is the one who was baptized with the Holy Spirit. He preached Christ is the one, eternal king, the one and only eternal king. He preached Christ is the son of God. He preached Christ is the giver of life. He preached the gospel. He preached Christ is Lord. He preached the Christ of the Bible. That's why we have to be consumed with the word of God so that we're very clear, crystal clear, who our Christ is. So when God gives us the opportunity to preach, we preach Christ. Now, going back to Jesus, uh, his, uh, his plea to the Pharisees, what did he say? He said, don't just believe my words, right? Just don't believe me. He said, believe the works that I do, the works, how I live, testify, screams that I am the Christ. 1 Timothy 4, 16 says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, to yourself, to your life and to your doctrine. Brothers and sisters, are we watching close attention to how we live our lives? We may not perform miracles, but are we showing the miracle that took place within us by how we live our lives? Right? The power is in God. Is, are you showing what God has done in our lives by how you live, by how you speak, the attitudes that you carry, the priorities that you have? How we study the Word of God, that we actually take the Word of God as God's Word and we cannot wait to get into it every single day. How we actually obey it, not just study it. Christ consumes us. We have to live this. Perhaps you might see some relatives, unsaved relatives. Perhaps you may be led to ask them, has Buddha done anything for you? Have you seen Buddha do anything for you? And maybe you, you have the life and testimony that says, have you seen Christ do something for you? me, your son? 
Have you seen a changed life in me, perhaps? Perhaps that'll be the message as you get around for uh, Christmas gatherings and dinners and brunches and amidst all the fun food and all that stuff, exchanging gifts. But maybe perhaps you'd be led by the Spirit of God to preach Christ. The Bible says, I believe, therefore I spoke. Do you believe? Let me give you a, got a little time here. Okay, I got a little time. I didn't have time earlier, but let me just, let me just read you a sermon by John the Baptist. Why not, right? We're, t- we're talking about John the Baptist. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 3, 18. No, Luke 3, 3, excuse me. Luke 3, 3, John the Baptist. And he came into all the district around, Jor- around the Jordan, the Jordan River, preaching. There he is. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's basically turn away from your sin and turn to Christ, follow Christ. And you read some Old Testament. He goes, as is written in the book of the word, words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, that's John the Baptist, make ready the way of the Lord, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Everything will be all right when you see the salvation of the Lord. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you snakes. He was kind of direct, right? He was kind of, he didn't, he wasn't roundabout. He was pretty, you bunch of snakes, he calls them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In essence, don't count on your parents. My parents are Christians. My grandparents are Christians. My pastor is a Christian. I go to a Christian church. Therefore, I'm a Christian. I come and sit here and listen to sermons, therefore I'm a Christian. No, it doesn't mean that. Your heritage, your connections to others does not make you a Christian. The only thing that makes you a Christian is that you repented of following after other things and say, Jesus, you're my Lord. Following Christ as Lord is what makes you a Christian. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. So what happens to trees that don't bear any spiritual fruit? John the Baptist is very clear. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's hell. And the crowds are questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? He has them right where he wants them. That's where you want it, right? Okay, well, what do I do? I am a sinner. What do I do now? Isn't that where you want them? Let's skip to 18 here, verse 18, if you're following along. So with many other exhortations, where you preach other things, I could imagine, I could imagine, he preached the gospel to the people. He preached the good news of Jesus Christ to the people. Wow. Remember what I just read to you out out of the Bible. I believe, therefore I spoke. John the Baptist believed, that's why he spoke. He believed in the Christ. That's why he spoke about Christ. Now, verse 19, those are immense cost. All right, immense cost. I mentioned earlier that he died. He, was, he had his head cut off. But when Herod, the Tetrarch, horrible king, was reprimanded by him, he, he confronts this king head on because of Herodias. Who's Herodias? His brother's wife. This evil king took his brother's wife to be his own. And because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked 
John up in prison, and John would have his head cut off someday. He loved the Lord. He believed in the Lord so much that he would confront the king of the land and just say, look, you need to repent. You're headed towards hell. You're headed towards destruction. Knowing that it could cost him, and it did cost him dearly. Cost him dearly. I believe, therefore I spoke. John the Baptist believed, therefore he spoke. The true and whole Christ. Christ is Lord. This is Advent season. We celebrate God is with us because t- God took on human flesh. Let's take full advantage of these opportunities that may present itself by, by divine providence. God may open up opportunities. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Bible says. And we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten, only one from the Father, full of grace and truth, the glory of God in Christ This is the Christ that we know. This is the Christ that we follow. This is the Christ that we preach. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus knows you from eternity past. And Jesus holds your security. And by the way, Jesus is God. We're following the right God. We're following the right one. And this is the one we're trusting in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is so good. Even these things that seems so obscure to me on first or second reading. I said, why is this here? It just jumps out of the pages and grabs my heart and owns me. I thank you for these three little verses. In John chapter 10, verse 40 to 41 and 42, thank you for these verses that scream to us what, it, what a life dominated by Christ looks like, a life that believes, therefore he spoke, that Jesus, you are God, the good shepherd, you are God. So Father, I pray for our church family here, your church family that you purchased with your blood and gave us the eternal payment for our sins to appease, to propitiate for the eternal wrath of the Father. I pray that you give us a boldness and greater clarity of who you are, Lord Jesus. This boldness that only comes from having a clear view of who you are, Lord Jesus. I pray that we are a little bit more clear today after preaching of your word. I pray that a little bit more you grip our hearts. A little bit more we want to become more like you. And a whole lot more we just absolutely love you and we're willing to talk to anyone about you. Just like John the Baptist. No signs, no miracles. All you did was simply preach Christ. I pray we'll be this type of people. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.